Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Ah, uh, could have used a spoiler alert. Hey folks, welcome to Spoiler Alert. This is Travis, and today we're talking about Alien. 1979, Ridley Scott. Second film. Um, it's written by Dan O'Brien and Ronald Shissette. Alien design, which is simply iconic, is done by H.R. Geiger. Why are we talking about Alien? Because Alien is a fucking amazing film. Nominated for multiple Oscars and BAFTAs. I think two Oscars, three BAFTAs. One, one Oscar, one, two BAFTAs. Um, the Oscars won. <clears throat> Ooh, excuse me, were for effects and the BAFTAs. I'm sorry. No, the Oscars was for production design, and the BAFTAs were for effects and soundtrack. Um, what is Alien about? Alien is a thriller, it's a science fiction film, it's a horror movie. It's everything it can be minus a comedy and a romance, which is everything it should be. Um, the cast, starting with Dallas, is Tom Skerritt. Lambert's played by Veronica Cartwright. Brett is Harry Dean Stanton. Kane, played by John Hurt, who was in Doctor Who, the 50th anniversary episode. He played the War Doctor. Ash is played by Ian Holm. Also known as Bilbo Baggins. Parker is played by Yafet Koto. Mother's Voice is done by Helen Horton. The Alien is done by Balai Bajeo. And last and certainly not least is Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver in her third film. Uh, the editor, Terry Rawlings. Sound editor, Jim Shields. Sound mixer, Derek Leather. Noise editor, Bob Hathaway. The mad artist, Ray Copel. The lighting is done by Lee Electrics. The music was done by Jerry Goldsmith and Lionel Newman. Again, the reason I mention that is because of everything they did and everything they won. And here we go. It starts off <clears throat> with a matte background of space or what they imagine space would look like, what we imagine space to look like. And it's just genuinely creepy and lonely. Very little sound. Almost no music, if I remember correctly. And that makes it just even creepier as the letters slowly begin to form. Piece by piece by piece. Um, after the title card comes up, a little bit more space, a few credits, and an info card. Okay. Basically it says, no it's the ship to Nostromo. It's a mining ship carrying a crew of seven and it's returning home with mining ore which I have no idea what that is I I don't know if it's real if it's made up they honestly don't mention the cargo again until the second film so it's fucking irrelevant there's very 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 as they as we come into the ship from the outside we see a Star Wars like entrance to the ship almost but with far better detail. As you go on the inside of the ship, you get a almost Star Wars lived-in type of mentality. It's not necessarily as clean as you would see in most most space films and television shows. It's, it's not dirty, but it's not, like I said, as pristine as most things 
as most things filmed in space or about space seem to be. It's lived in, which is amazing and fucking gross as you watch and see there's a coffee cup that's just sitting there and you begin to wonder how long that coffee cup's been sitting there. That sound is two cats going absolutely fucking ate shit <laughs> for no reason. Okay? Cat cat is upstairs. There are two cats just up and downstairs because I'm talking. It's driving them insane. Fuck them. Uh, where was I? Oh, yes. It's lived in and gross coffee cup. Uh, after a little bit more, after a few more scenes of the ship, the claustrophobia that you will be experiencing throughout the film, because for as large as the ship is, they move through hallways and things of that nature. So it does very good tracking shots. Very, very good tracking shots of the setting and the fear. You don't even realize that is fear until later on in the movie when you realize there's no place for them to move. But it's a fear that's slowly instilled. The tracking shot slowly goes into their sleeping pods, which may be one of the cleaner places in the movie, in the film. And slowly and in unison, the pods begin to open. Kane, <clears throat> second in command, is the first one to wake up. It's regular shit for him, pretty much. He wakes up, yawns, gets dressed, and then there's a slow fade in edit, fade out edit of everybody. Well, not everybody, most people getting up. After I think about the third person, I think it's Ash, you get them eating what would be breakfast, considering they just woke up, but there's no time and space, I guess. That's one thing you know. No clocks. I guess time truly doesn't matter at that point. But I guess we'll just call it breakfast. Um, as they eat breakfast, you you get the sense not you get a reality in the work relationship. <clears throat> They're not necessarily best friends. They don't hate each other. They work well with each other. Having said that, immediately, immediately, Parker and Brett start whispering and talking about equal shares and more pay for both of them. I believe they're the engineers and Brett works for Parker. <clears throat> no one quite knows that they are not where they're supposed to be. They should be arriving at Earth, but Mother woke them up. Mother is, I guess, the company. It's the ship's AI, but it's run by the company, programmed by the company, which is Wayland Yutani. You don't find that out till the second film, but we'll deal with that part. Um, Dallas, the captain, gets a buzz and has to go into a white room. And in a scene that I want to say doesn't quite hold up much like mother waking them up with a dot matrix printer but probably does hold up knowing how government facilities are run and there are skiff buildings Dallas goes into a white room by himself with one computer screen and gets a message <clears throat> that there was a transmission they've intercepted and they have to go see what it is it seems like an SOS as he's reading this, the rest of the crew slowly begins to get ready 
get in their positions because they assume, again, they're going home. As they do begin to get in their positions, though, they realize that they are not in the Milky Way. This is not their galaxy, as Lambert repeatedly says. That's not our system. I know that. After Dallas comes out from speaking with Mother, he relays the information of what they have now learned with a few more details and a bit more ambiguity. What's happening now, baby? Well, some of you may have figured out we're not home yet. We're only halfway there. What? Mother's interrupted the course of our journey. What? Yeah. She's programmed to do that should certain conditions arise. They have. Like what? Seems she has intercepted a transmission of unknown origin. She got us up to check it out. A transmission? Out here? Yeah. What kind of a transmission? <clears throat> They're about halfway there, and Mother intercepted a transmission, as said. Parker and Brett, but mostly Parker, are against it. It's not in his payroll. It's not in his pay grade. A pay grade he's trying to get raised. But, again, they're minors. They, this is, they're not a rescue mission. He shut down rather rapidly, though, because Ash has to remind him that if you don't do what the company says, you don't get paid at all. Equal shares, no shares, fuck all shit. You get nothing. And, with a smile, Parker says we're going to go. So, they go. After the discussion, there is a short setup of them getting full on into their seats and into their positions for what they do for their landing. And again, nothing unusual. It's very much common shit for them to land on a, to land on a planet and do whatever it is they do. Um, not people that are exceptionally perfect at their job like you would see in a lot of things, but people that are competent and efficient. And that's even with the storm that they have to deal with and the fact that they do have a small rough crash landing. Bad enough to where it jars them around and Parker and Brett have to hop into action. They run downstairs, they notice what's wrong and Parker and Brett use this, well try to use it to their advantage. And they lie. Parker lies to Brett and Brett lies to Parker. Parker lies to them. To where you don't know what the truth is, to be incredibly honest about how bad the damage is and how long it's going to take. The only thing you do know for sure is that it's not actually going to take 25 hours. Is that it? Look, we couldn't fix it out here anyway. We got to rewrite all these ducts, and uh, in order to do that, we've got to dry dock. What else? At least 25 hours. Like Parker told him. But what do they know? <clears throat> While Parker and Brett are doing their job, the other ones are going to do the job they're told. Lambert, Dallas, and Kane hop out, geared up, 
and mention weapons, but don't do a weapons check. Because for some reason, there's no security on this this mining rig, which I don't understand. There's always some sort of security security guard. And yet, we're traveling through space with not a single weapon, not a single piece of security. Um, but doesn't stop them. They do their job because they land, well, they crash land within walking distance of the beacon. So as the three of them head out, Ash does some weird jogging, locks into his seat, starts trying to decode the transmission along with Mother's help. Ripley goes down to check on the damage repair and gets into another conversation about equal shares and what Parker and Brett aren't going to do if they're not given equal shares. And this begins one of my few problems with this movie. Eh, I got a few, more than a few, but one of the bigger ones. Because Ripley immediately responds with, you'll get what you're owed. You'll all get equal shares, something to that effect. And considering she said that, it seems like he would know that. So I don't know why he's complaining. But he does. And at some point, Ripley's tired of it. And asks him politely, I think, to go fuck himself. And then goes back upstairs. The storm they landed in makes it very difficult to see and very difficult to transmit, though. Ash always waves and says that he can't see him. It's it's cute and, and creepy at the same time. Um, and you also get begin to get a full sense of Lambert's whole deal and her whole character, and she is whiny, and with good reason, to a degree. At the same time, it, it's not helping. When I first watched it, I kind of agreed with her. Like, I'd be pissed and whiny about everything, too. But after 40 years of watching this film, I got to agree with Kane. Like, just quit your bitching, dude. Nobody wants to be there, but they're there. As they enter the cave, well, as they enter a pass through a cave, a tunnel, I don't know. It is excessively dark and excessively creepy. Um, probably about as dark as it should be, if you ask me. Because they have no idea where they're going. There's no real atmosphere. It's just a storm. As they come through it, though, they get a pulled back shot of the engineer's ship. And for 79, for now, it's an amazing scene. The three of them staring at this huge C-shaped vessel. It's fucking awesome. And I am going to call him the engineer because years later we find out that's what they were called sadly is engineers because they engineered us apparently fucking shit show anyway <clears throat> as they enter the engineer's ship it's very it's even darker creepier and almost silent except for the sounds of them moving around the ship they come in they come into the, what will be the pilot chamber, I guess. And another beautiful, large, and pulled back shot of them. And the scope and size and scale of what they're dealing with. <clears throat> and an engineer with its chest burst open. 
Ron's had been out right. Like he exploded from inside. As Kane looks around, he notices a hole in the floor which drips from that point down. And it's our first real shot of the acid. And they don't know that yet. We don't know that yet. We just know it's a hole. Uh, at that point, we cut back to Ripley talking to Ash, asking if she can try her hand at the transmission. And you leave it to a woman. She gets that shit done. Not all the way, but enough to learn that it's not an SOS, but a warning. Stay away. She offers to go tell them. Ash talks her down, letting her know that, you know, it'd be too far. With the distance they are, by the time that you got to them, it'd be too late if anything happened anyway. He's not wrong. Cut back to them in the ship, into the engineer's ship, and they're lowering Kane into the hole to see how far it goes, what's underneath. Again, beacon, where from? And as he gets lowered, he's... Lowered into a room of egg sacks and a whole lot of mist. Walking around, he, as he's describing it, he slips, falls, and kind of bumps into an egg sack. Actually, I don't think he does. But we do know, well, we are taught that the mist around the egg sacks is what seems to wake them up. Because as he gets close to the mist, it breaks. He looks in a little bit, and he sees what is... The face hugger kind of moving around. And oddly enough, he doesn't get too close to it past that point. I like that about this film. No one does anything too stupid. You know, shit just kind of goes wrong. And that's fucking amazing. Because then that egg sack opens up. And again, he's not that close to it. But that thing fucking leaped. Wraps around his head and... Kane's done. Though... It got under his mask somehow, and I don't know how, because he never took his mask off at, at all. But somehow, it got under his mask. Next thing you see is Ripley getting a radio call from Dallas, a very calm Dallas, telling them to, telling Ripley to let him in the ship. It's an emergency. Again, oddly calm considering the emergency. Uh, she asks what's wrong and when relayed that there is something attached to Kane's face she says no which is right it'll contaminate it could contaminate everyone on the ship they don't know what it is and it shouldn't be on the ship <clears throat> there's a small argument but with Dallas the captain off the ship Kane with the face hugger Ripley's third in command she says no, and again, she is not wrong. She's following policy. However, the hobbit, Ash, runs downstairs and lets him in. Science purposes, I guess. So now, Kane, I guess, safely aboard the ship with everyone else. They, uh, they start the process of trying to take it off them. They... Excuse me. They cut off. His, they, cut, they, cut, they cut the mask off, which is when you fully see that that thing is absolutely attached to his face. And again, 
with something that's supposed to be airtight for space travel. I'm trying to figure out how it got under his fucking mask. I'll move past that. They make a few attempts. Ash is the science engineer, so the first thing he tries to do is just lift it off, which does not work. The second thing he does is try to cut it off, and that's when we get the acid blood. The whole time this is happening, though, you have Dallas finally showing some real emotion, and it, it's it's pretty dumb emotion because he's just stating the obvious. When the tail clenches, he's like it's choking him and ripping his scalp off to where even the even Ash is kind of aggravated at this point. Like I can see that we have to figure out what's going on. But back to the acid blood that is now dripping and going to drip through the hall. They all run. All run downstairs. And as they get downstairs, it finally stopped before it hit the hull. Dallas takes one of Ash, one of Brett's pens. Yeah, takes one of Brett's pens, touches it, melts the pen all up. And they realize it's molecular acid. And as Parker says, it is a hell of a defense mechanism. You don't dare kill it. And then he gives Brett the pen back. He gives him a melted, acid-ridden, smoldering pen back. Like, what the fuck is he supposed to do with that pen? But he definitely gave it back to him. And he took it, but he had the look on his face of, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this pen? A few times while all this is happening, Parker has uh, asked one very, very relevant, important question. Why don't we just freeze him? How come they don't freeze him? And it's not the first time you ask it. Won't be the last time. Do they ever freeze him? The answer is a fuck no. There's not a two-minute sequence for some reason. With Parker and Brett while they're fixing the ship, finally fixing the ship, and they just repeat each other for about two solid minutes, like I said. And Parker says the word place four times, and I'm, I, I don't get it. In less than two minutes, just place, 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 place. And and Brett's just, yeah, 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 right, right, right. It's a lot with a little bit, almost too much. Then you got to Ash. <clears throat> you get a scene with Ash and Ripley. Ripley, actually questions why Ash let him in knowing the policy knowing the procedures knowing what could happen why would you let them in Ash gives his reasons which boil down to science and it's science and what I say is science is science so um but Ripley starts to question Ash's intentions from this point a little bit of time has passed and Dallas gets a buzz <clears throat> while sitting in his captain's chair. It's from Ash. Dallas buzzes Ripley. And they all go meet in Kane's quarters. The face hugger's falling off and somehow it's gone. I think that's the best part is how they managed to lose this fucking thing so many times. Uh... But then there's this wonderful little jump scare where Tube falls down on Ripley. Obviously, it's not the face hugger. But the second thing that falls down is the dead face hugger. Again, on poor, poor Ripley. 
to be honest, this whole song is just about her fucking long 200-year life, and it's something like 200 years. They keep freezing this broad. It's just unfortunate. It's an unfortunate thing. But, yeah, again, great jump scares. The carcass falls on Ripley, and Ash proceeds to poke and prod at it for science. Dallas and Ripley finally get some alone time, and Ripley begins to question policy and Ash's motives to Dallas. Dallas informs her, I don't know the guy, basically. He's new. He was put on here last minute. Ash is the science engineer, and what he says on all things science is the final say. And then he begins to question Ripley as to how much longer they have to be on this goddamn rock. She responds with, there's a few things, but they could fly. And Dallas Riley so wants to go, so he, he they go. They uh, start to rock, and they go. They take off. Once they finally get out of, out into space and out into orbit, and finally you get a scene with Lambert not complaining or whining, but she only brings bad news. They're still ten months away from Earth. Something to lower your spirits. Show me, will you, please? Well, according to my calculations, based on the time spent getting to and from the planet. Just give me the short version. How far to Earth? Ten months. Oh, God. Right. Before they're about to go into cryo, again, Ash buzzes them all to let them know that Kane's awake. Yay! After a round of some basic and admittedly stupid questions. They all decide to eat one last meal before they go back into cryo for their 10 months, assuming everything is fine. Go sleep, wake up, get home. Halfway through the meal, and some very awkward locker room talk that seems out of place, even... It just it just seemed out of place because it, it hadn't happened yet. There's been no mention of anything like this in this movie up to this point. And the fact that Parker says it is just kind of weird for me. Mm. A little bit after that, Kane begins to convulse. And then we get the, the infamous chestburster scene. It, it's amazing. It's not just how, it's not just, it's all of it. It's John Hurt playing Kane, flipping and flailing around while they think he's having a seizure. They're trying to jam a spoon into my guy's mouth. Parker and Dallas are holding him down. Lambert's screaming in the background like she does. And then you see his chest just begin to get red as his back jerks. And again, this is in 79, so this is practical effects. And then it just rips through his chest. And it, it's, it, it almost says hi. It looks at them all. And... Yes, you can see the cord or piping that's controlling it, but that does not matter. I like that Parker is immediately about to stab it. And I like that Ash has to tell him not to. Not for any real reason other than if what was on Kane's face bled acid. And then it put something in Kane that popped out of Kane. I imagine it bleed acid too. When you stab it, it's not going to do any good for anyone. And immediately it just takes the fuck off. It's amazing. It's the funniest scene ever. Because there's no real movement to it. 
I imagine something like that would slither because it looks like everybody's firstborn. Everybody's newborn. So I imagine it would slither, but it just like dashes across the table, knocks a few things down. Um, it's an amazing scene. It's worth the price of admission. And uh, now we get, um, I'm sorry, um, now we get the morning of Cain, which the space funeral is very similar to a pirate or Viking funeral at sea. You know, they wrapped them up and just jettisoned them out. And it's a very cool scene. Not the funeral, not the death. I mean, the death is cool. But again, it's a great scene of the detail of the ship, the model of the ship. <clears throat> finally, we have to get to finally we get to actual weapons. Well, some sort of weapons. They apparently have a cattle prod is all they have. I mean, I imagine they're mining. There should be drills and lasers, but a cattle prod. So armed with a cattle prod and a, what seems to be a vacuum cleaner. It's a, but it can detect small changes in air density. It hasn't got much of a range, but when you get within a certain distance, it'll start to give off a signal. What's it key on? Micro changes in air density. It's what we are told. It texts, and it looks, like I said, like a Dyson. It looks, it almost looks, it just, I don't know, it looks like a god. It looks like Bender. It looks like Bender from Futurama. And it apparently can detect small changes in density. But I don't understand that because anything that moves in front of it should. But whatever. They go through a small but effective plan by Dallas. And to be honest, most plans in, these, in, this, in this one in particular aren't bad plans. They just. They have to be changed because of what they're dealing with. And how it keeps changing. So they separate. Parker, Brett, and Ripley, they all go together with a net. <laughs> and it's absolutely ridiculous the size of holes in the net because the thing would just go straight through the net. Like you saw how big it was. But but then again, they could just be using the net to catch the cat, which, oh, did I forget to mention they have a cat? There's apparently a fucking cat you see twice in this movie before this point. But. Now you need some set pieces. So the first time they get movement on the density meter, they they find out it's the cat. And the cat's name is Jonesy. And Brett just lets the cat go. They all kind of have a chuckle, but let Brett know, you know, you have to grab the cat or else we're going to have run into this problem again. Which, again, pretty fucking stupid, but good way to isolate them. So Brett has to now go looking for the cat. But he's very cautious in his defense. Again, they're not stupid. And the cat's just being a cat. Like fucking with him. Hissing sounds. Because there's nothing going on just yet. While he's looking for the cat, Brett comes across what seems to be a skin. And at this point, not a great decision to not regroup with Ripley and Parker. But he keeps going. Again, cautiously, but keeps going. Into a room that 
I guess, holds some sort of vehicle, some Land Rover type vehicle, and lots of chains. It looks like something from Clive Barker's Wet Dreams. And uh, another great scene. There's water dripping from coolant towers, or it could just be water from the heat of the ship creating steam. Either way, Brett needs to rinse his face off, so he does. He finds the cat. The cat lets out a hiss, and there is utter silence. <clears throat> utter silence as the alien, as the xenomorph drops behind him. There's one final angry hiss before Brett turns around and sees what he's dealing with now. The skin has grown to be what Parker later says is the size of a man, but every time you see it near somebody, this thing towers about eight feet with this gnarly, shiny black skin, bones that look like ribs in reverse coming out its back, this vicious tail, and it just hisses, snarls, picks bread up, opens his mouth, and jettisons its other mouth through his fucking head while the cat does absolutely nothing but sit there. I think that's that's amazing to me. There's absolute indifference. <laughs> and apparently while it's done, it Ripley and Parker saw it because they keep saying, Parker in particular, keeps mentioning about how it's the size of a man and it lifted him up. But I am going to note that there's no more cat now. No more cat. Not for a while. The cat doesn't die, if you're worried, because, you know, he don't fuck with cats. But the cat doesn't die. But all of a sudden, the cat's irrelevant again. <clears throat> so they have to change the plans around once they realize that it's going through the air ducts. Again, another solid plan. You go through duck by duck, closing each one, because there's only a few that's large enough for it to get through. And, uh... They have, again, no weapons but a cattle prod, and they know that's not going to do anything. So Dallas asked Parker to whip up a flamethrower. He said it takes him 20 minutes to do so. And why they didn't do this in the first place, I do not know. <clears throat> but 20 minutes to whip a flamethrower, which he does. This whole time, Mother seems exceptionally worthless. I say that because Dallas goes into Mother's. I always seem weird saying that. But Dallas goes into Mother and asks, basically, chances of survival. I think the answers were, I don't understand the question. It's fucking amazing. So, they start the plan. Dallas, the flamethrower, start going duck through duck, level through level. And all you see is black and then Tom Skerritt and every once in a while some flashing lights from from fans and the flamethrower every once in a while. But so much darkness around the edges of that camera created such a feeling of claustrophobia, claustrophobia without even without the xenomorph being involved. The idea of having to walk around in that it's a lot. It's a fucking lot. It's and then, like I said, very early lit. Uh 
again, good plan in theory and in action. Unfortunately, the technology is a problem here because it can't tell what floor, I guess, everything is on, which wouldn't be the case. We know that now. We have maps of top operating for everything, so we would know and be able to figure out what floor it's on. But for 79, and honestly, even taking that away, as Lambert begins to scream that it's coming right for you and Dallas has no clue where it is, he's firing off flamethrower shots in every direction. And then what seemed to be jazz hands and an alien, a xenomorph, pick him right up and don't honestly kill him. You don't see any blood. You don't see anything like that. It just snatches him up. But you're never going to see him again. So that really, really doesn't matter. And uh, yeah. So now there's, what, four? (laughs) Yeah, four. Four left. Lambert wants to leave. Ripley has let her know the ship, the escape pod can't take all four of them. Lambert's quick to draw straws. You know, here's the beauty of it. We all know if she'd have got the short straw, she'd have flipped shit. It'd have been another 20 minutes of her screaming. Unfortunately, Parker's on the other route. He wants to kill it. All that 70s machismo is coming through, and he's like, he wants to kill it. Lambert wants to whine. Ripley is now in command. And again, it wasn't a bad idea that he had. Block it off, block it off, and then shoot it out into space. So, that's the plan they're going to go with. But before they do so, now that Ripley's in charge, she has control of Mother. She goes in to find out what the plans are to get answers. While inside Mother, she learns that... uh. They landed there because they knew something was there. Ash knew that. And that the crew is, in fact, expendable. And then Ash very creepily pokes up behind her and tells her there's an explanation for this. There is an explanation for this, you know. There isn't. But even if there was, there's no explanation for how creepily you just leered and came up behind me. So there's just no explanation for any of it. And she tells him that. She kind of breaks down for a minute as she chokes him up, throws him around a little bit. And then she leaves. She goes to Radio Parker and Lambert. And Ash begins to lock doors. And Bilbo Baggins, that tiny, tiny man, gets very scary in his silence. He just proceeds to lock the doors behind her, lock the doors, and then stands in her way. And then a milky substance begins to pour from his head. Which is probably why I don't like milk. But a milky substance pours very slowly from his head. Just like that one Giuliani oil slick, but it's from the front of his head. And then he giggles. And that officially scares the shit out of Sigourney Weaver. Out of Ripley. And she begins to run. He grabs her by the hair and rips this chunk of hair out. It's very, very, very brutal. The whole scene is a lot because he's chasing her. He's throwing her. He knocks her unconscious. 
and then proceeds to choke her to death with a rolled up porno mag and would have succeeded had Parker and Lambert not got there. Parker begins to try to pry Ash off and Ash gives him the Temple of Doom chest thing and it that, that happened. I'm telling you, man, he got strength to him because that put him down for a minute. So Parker picks up a fire extinguisher and takes it straight, just straight to Ash's head. And that's when Ash's head goes straight to the left, but he's still moving. And so Parker begins to hit him again and again and again and again and again until his head is dangling on by one piece. And then Parker has the wonderful epiphany. Ash is a goddamn robot. It's a robot. Ash is a goddamn robot. God. You beat this thing for three solid minutes. It is spewing milk all over the place. His head is on backwards, and you then now go, Ash is a goddamn robot. Which to then, Ash wakes up and proceeds to fuck him up for a little bit longer with no fucking head. Talk about it. You lost a fight to a headless robot. Almost lost a fight to a headless robot. But... He didn't, so I guess that's a win, right? Unfortunately, they need to know what Ash knows, so Ripley tells Parker to hook it up, even though Parker protests. So does Lambert. Finally, they're both on the same page, and she's not whining about it. And she, Ripley, asks Ash what exactly they're doing here, and gets basically the same answer like you would with any customer service. And again, crew expendable. And which hurts even more to hear, I think. Like, written down is one thing. To hear the words crew expendable from somebody who was part of your crew. That's got to fucking suck, right? So they go to shut him off. Before they do, he asks for one last word. And expresses how he doesn't think that they'll win. And his deepest sympathies. And he laughs as they cut him off. Now they're going to go with Lambert's plan of... Jettisoning the ship and blowing that shit up and escape, taking the escape pod, blowing the ship up. Because that's probably what they should have done in the first fucking place. Oh, but not before they light that motherfucker ash on fire. For some reason, they just lit a room on fire in that motherfucker. They, they, she turns around, lights him up, and shuts the door. And I guess there's some sort of mechanism, some sort of fire extinguishing mechanism that came from the ceiling, but you don't see it. She just lit a room on fire and then left. They need coolant and filters. And it's set to self-destruct. Parker and Lambert are on filter and coolant. Self-destruct on the other end of the ship. That's on Ripley. Plus, I think you had to be the captain to do it. And she's the one in charge now. So, Parker and Lambert go to get the stuff. The coolant, filters. I think both. Either or. Either way, and decide no longer the time to be quiet. 
And there, Lambert's just throwing metal. All you hear is clang, clang, clang. Which, again, you hear and notice because of the silence in this film. It's fucking deafening, the silence. At points. It's, it's, it's just, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And Parker's standing there with his little flamethrower doing his best cronk from Emperor's New Groove. Every corner just, <laughs> it's amazing. If Archer and Kronk had a son, and their son was a black guy in the 70s, that'd be Parker. But with all that noise, you know what's bound to happen. As Ripley's setting the self-destruct, she hears the cat. That's right, that fucking cat's back. I don't know how she heard the cat. I guess the cat apparently knows how to operate the ship, but she hears the cat. She says self-destruct and goes looking for the cat. While this is happening, the xenomorph appears in front of Lambert in just this towering shadow in which she then proceeds to just scream and cry while Parker is yelling at her to get out the way so he can flamethrow it and she actively says that she can't. She is terrified. And then Parker does what seems to happen in all these type of films, which I I do not like. He tried to fight it physically. He tackles it, I guess, to get it out of the way and then tells her to run. And, of course, she doesn't. She stands there and screams while Parker then proceeds to get his head ripped open, just like his best friend Brett did earlier. You don't even get to see what happens to poor Lambert. You just hear it over the intercom, as Ripley does. And when she gets there, it's just some dangling feet and some blood. So now it's Ripley. She realizes that she can't maybe do all this by herself. So she tries to go back and turn off the self-destruct and she misses it. And in the self-destruct's defense, it told him she had five minutes to do it. And she did it in five minutes and one second. And she got pissed. And it's one of the few times you hear Mother's voice as basically telling her, you know, you're fucked. Self-destruct, he minus in four minutes and 59 seconds. So now she has to go back for the coolant, which she does in an amazing scene where between her and the escape pod is the alien. So while she goes all the way around the other way, there's nothing but flashing yellow lights because... There's a self-destruct. And then her and a flamethrower. As she is perceived, just gets sweatier and sweatier and more and more scared as she's walking through these hallways by herself. She grabs the cat again because at one point she put the fucking cat down because apparently this cat is so important that you have to take it with you. In life or death. And I'm not for. I'm not saying killing it. I'm saying. Fuck that cat. I'm honestly saying fuck that cat. But. She finally gets there. And gets on board. With 30 seconds to spare. And we get the countdown. And another effect that doesn't really hold up. But then I don't think they knew it was great effect then. As the the Nostromo explodes. They have this wonderful shot of Ripley shaking because of the light. They cut back to the explosion, which doesn't, again, does not look great. So then they cut back immediately to Ripley and the light shaking. 
It's uh again doesn't hold up, but I think they knew that then. She gets to take a slight breather and mm, sorry. She gets to take a slight breather and cat cuddles before she goes back into cryo sleep. As she begins to set up for cryo, she notices. And I don't even understand. I guess the alien was asleep. Tired, maybe. As she begins to set up, she notices that one of the pipes is not a pipe. It is, in fact, that enormous alien head. The xenomorph's head. And I guess the xenomorph has night terrors because it shoots its hand out and its mouth comes open, but it doesn't do anything. I legit think it may have night terrors. But then again, it whatever. At this point... I mean, I mean, what it does, I can understand that. You know, there's got to be some PTSD involved in putting your tongue through people's foreheads. But whatever. In almost utter silence, she steps all the way back across the escape pod and slides in to her spacesuit. And kudos for the sound editing and music again. Like, I just, I can't say enough. There's very little music, and the music that's there is perfect. And the sound editing or lack of sound in certain places is just fucking amazing. But uh, as she gets into her spacesuit, she grabs a harpoon gun and begins to just say lucky, lucky, lucky star. Hoping to God that everything is going to work. She begins to press buttons trying to figure out which one will shoot out the steam. That'll wake that fucker up. After three buttons, she gets to it. The third button is the one that sets him off. And he wakes up and he is rightfully pissed. I'd be mad too. And he's falls out. He kind of slithers out, slides out, stands up in his towering, menacing way. She turns her back to it. I think she's trying to lure it. Or maybe she's just... Trying not to be scared, but it gives us another uh, iconic over the shoulder, another iconic shot. The over the shoulder, she peers back through her increasingly fogged up glass on her spacesuit. And then she turns around, opens up the bay door, and shoots that son of a bitch with a harpoon gun. And let's go. Closes the bay door. Unfortunately, the harpoon gun, the gun part of the harpoon gun, is stuck in there. And he begins to crawl back up the line. And the xenomorph is determined. And that is one thing. That Those fuckers are determined. But as it crawls back up, Ripley actually wastes no time. There's no hesitation there. As she immediately just hits the thrusters. And then walks away with them on. And just stares out the window. To make sure that I have nothing left to deal with. Once that fucker burns, cuts to Ripley, Jonesy, and her filling out what would be paper audio paperwork, explaining that she is the last surviving member of the member of the Nostromo. She's going back into cryo, and in six weeks she'll reach the frontier, and hopefully she'll get picked up by somebody. Final report of the commercial starship Nostromo. Third officer reporting. The other members of the crew, Kane, Lambert, Parker, Brett, Ash, 
and Captain Dallas are dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo. Signing off. Again, while it is not perfect, it is... Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It isn't perfect, but it, it it's damn near. It's one of the scariest films. It's it's so tense. It's fun. It is genuinely fun. Because even with Lambert, you're with him all the way. And you actually kind of feel bad for most people in the film. You feel bad for almost everybody that has something happen to them. And... There could not have been a better reveal in 1979 than finding out that Ash was a goddamn robot. So, yeah. Alien, 1979. Again, Ridley Scott. Oscar and BAFTA award-winning film that gave us so much. Least of not. Least of which. Actually, most importantly, being Sigourney Weaver. But, you know, thank you for listening. That's all I got to say about Alien. That's all I can say about Alien without seeming any weirder than I do. Uh, Like, subscribe, rate, review, complain, or don't. Just listen. Put the shit on repeat. I don't care. Thank you, and... That was spoiler alert. Have a good night.